This is a Dicegate podcast. Imagine a world where the supernatural and the unexplained intertwine. With the veil separating our reality from the unknown is thin, and the echoes of the past still whisper in the darkness. The investigators of the Circle of Dawn's Macabre are our guides into this realm, dancing on the edge of life and death as they explore the haunting mysteries that defy explanation. We begin with classified assignment number 197, Beyond the Veil. We begin our story on the gaslit streets of Nevermore, where we wind through a grim tapestry of cobblestone alleyways and grandiose boulevards. The city perched on the precipice of an industrial revolution bears witness to both the rise of scientific progress and the shadowy recesses of human imagination. We see the towering spires of Gothic and neoclassic architecture cast long, ominous shadows with the city's myriad bridges crisscrossing the inky waters of Zion Bay, which splits nevermore in twain. The dense fog that creeps in from the harbor veils the city in a shroud of uncertainty, concealing the horrors lurking just beyond the gas lamp's flickering reach as the shadows of the unfolding in the emergence war that followed still ever looming. The bustling thoroughfares teem with a diverse population, their tattered clothing and hard expressions revealing the weight of their struggles in this sprawling, unforgiving urban labyrinth where a socioeconomic divide is ever-present. Vendors and shopkeepers peddle their wares on every corner, selling things from exotic spices to obscure trinkets that whisper of hidden knowledge and forgotten lore. The city's pulsating heartbeat is marked by the deafening clang of industry echoing from the twisting alleys of the ore district, where colossal, steam-driven machines belch dark plumes of smoke into the perpetually overcast sky. These infernal creations, a symbol of human ingenuity, are responsible for both economic prosperity and the eerie disquiet that haunts nevermore. A mysterious haze blankets the atmosphere as if the ghosts of the past converse with the sinister undertones of the future. Whispers of unexplained phenomena and inexplicable occurrences ripple through Nevermore, weaving tales of something insidious lurking just beyond the awareness of the city's inhabitants. We sit for a moment on a wide shot of the city of Nevermore, where scattered rays of golden afternoon sunlight peek through the overcast skies. These sparse rays reflect off the crashing waves like sparkling diamonds as they lick the edges of the docks as we shift our focus to the harborfront district. We see dozens of fishing and cargo vessels bob up and down with the motion of the waves, some still trailing in after a day at sea. The air here is thick with the scent of brine and the distant cries of seagulls. We shift to a bird's eye view of the docks where we see fishermen laboriously unloading their catches and dock workers hauling crates of goods to and fro. As we move across the docks from above, we shift our focus as we push in on a singular person in the midst of the commotion. The figure we see is short and stout, standing upon a makeshift wooden platform, surrounded by a small crowd of curious onlookers. Marvin, could you describe to us what you look like? So you meet Marvin, a youthful street merchant who's a bit on the doughier side, wearing an ensemble that's highlighted by a slightly embroidered vest and a comfortable shell bar 
Their attire exudes the timeless allure of traders and peddlers that might have found their ways to the docks, but doesn't stand out any more than you might think was intended. Marvin possesses a warm, sun-kissed tan complexion. Uh, their big, brown, curly hair frames a face that's alive with sparkle of big, welcoming brown eyes and a perpetually friendly smile. But what's really going to captivate your eye you saw it is the elaborate display in front of Marvin. Spread out in a tray, you'd find a, an array of captivating bottles, all different shapes and sizes, all set up on different tiers that when Marvin winds the tray up, it seems to dance up and down and rotate, um, with each bottle being a different color of like glass, uh, making the selling of these like three, four ounce tinctures, a little more enticing. And off the sunlight and the water, uh, these bottles glimmer and have an aura of mystery, promising wonders and relief, beckoning to all who have passed by. Um, and you hear Marvin call out, Gather round, folks, for a sight to behold. Witness the magic of these elixirs, pure and bold. Crafted by the great wellness weaver in times of woe, when the gloom's creeping near, these potions bring solace, never you fear. Zip a drop, let your worries take flight. Ailments vanish, you'll feel just right. With a spring in your step, a heart full of cheer, a brighter future is waiting right here. Step on up, dear friends, don't delay. In these tinctures, a brighter day is a sip away. As Marvin begins their sales pitch, the crowd of onlookers in front of them, they begin to gather around. Some start to reach for their wallets, tempted by their pervasive words. You see this gentleman wearing kind of a thick, heavy coat that is weather-worn, a man that has spent much of his time at sea, this gruff beard, big bushy eyebrows, scraggly hair, walk up with a bit of a gait as he approaches Marvin. What exactly is in these these tinctures here? I feel like we are just being sold some kind of snake oil hubbub. Hmm? Well, good sir, if it were snake oil, it'd be the best snake oil you ever had. I... You sure you don't want to try one? I can give you one for free right now. Free on me today. It will cure all your ailments, just like I said. Uh, I mean, I'm never going to pass up anything free, um... Sure. Here, come on up. Step on up. He grabs the bottle, pops the top off of it, takes a big swig, and in these heavy eyes of this fisherman, there's this lightness that comes upon him as he stands straight. He looks down at his leg in utter shock as you can see in that moment the relief over this fisherman's eyes. He looks towards Marvin, and he begins pulling bills out of his pocket and coin in hopes that this will continue to help ail some of these pains and aches that he has from days at sea. Uh, how much can you sell me? Um, that's, this is, I don't... Please, these are, these are hot commodities, but I told you to wake some snakes, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, you did. Uh, and he begins pulling out bills to, to pick up a few tinctures. As this is happening, Marvin, as you're closing various sales here, you see a figure begin to weave their way through the crowd of excited customers. The figure is a young man, mid-teens, wearing this worn cloth jacket. The elbows are ripped and missing. It's got a little uh, cap on that looks almost hand-stitched at this point with all kinds of patches upon it. And he approaches you with an envelope in his hand as he pulls it from his jacket and hands it to you. And you see on the letter, the wax stamp on the back bears the symbol of Candela Obscura. A message for you. Uh, the woman had sent me said it was urgent. Oh, glad you hurried. Then here's, um, here's a little something for you. Don't spend it all in one place. Or would you rather have one of my tinctures? I'd, I'd like the money, please. Uh, as his outreach strand, uh, hand grabs the coin from Marvin, and he disappears back into the crowd. As, as the young man disappears amongst um, the customers that are still here trying to get 
tinctures while they can. You see this middle-aged woman approach um, as the crowd kind of starts to disperse with a bit of desperation in her eyes. Excuse me, um, could I get a, do, do you by chance have a couple more bottles? I, I, I just returned from, uh, for the day and I, I, I saw people leaving and I'm not sure if you have any more, my, my mother, she's too ill to get down here to see you and, um, she talks about how this is the only thing that helps get her out of bed. Do, do you by chance have any to spare? Or, I, I mean, I have, I have pavement here. It's on him. They would sell too fast otherwise. I'd have one person buy all of them. Um, it wouldn't, your your mother wouldn't happen to be Bethany, would it? I haven't seen her yet for a couple days. Yes, that is, uh, that is my mother. She's, she honestly, she took a bit of a spill. Um, she was, she can't move around like she used to. Uh, but yeah, I'm just trying to help out where I can um, with, with, um, with father gone now. Yes, uh, it, it is for Bethany. She, she'd she be very grateful. Um, I'd be very grateful uh, if, if I could purchase a couple from you. Well, of course. Here you go. Let me let me put a uh, put a little note on it for her. Three's still all I can sell you, but just know that you can come back tomorrow. I'll have plenty more. But remember, early bird catches the worm here. Absolutely. I'll have to tell the captain to hurry it up on home tomorrow. <laughs> Were you out on one of the fishing ships? Yes, I am. Um, I recently had to pick up some additional work. i just trying to help out where I can. Um, it's uh, it's good work. It pays well. Um, beats working in the factories. That's for sure. I would never want to be stuck there. No. At least we get to listen to the ocean here. It is hard work, of course, but um, I enjoy it for the most part. <laughs> As she laughs, handing out the coin and bills to hand to Marvin. Thank you again. As I hand the three tinctures to her, I'm going to yell out. That's all, folks. We're sold out. There's no more for today. Come back tomorrow. And you see the folks that kind of were approaching really? some of the oh, latecomers from the docks disperse away as you shout this out into the into the crowd that was lingering in the area. The woman takes the tinctures for Bethany, her mother, and she begins her way. Oh, wait, before you go. Yes. What's your name, by the way? Um, you and I haven't met before. Oh, yes. Um, my name's Margaret. Well, Margaret, let's hope we meet under better circumstances, but you're welcome anytime. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you, Marvin. Don't thank me. Thank the Wellness Weaver. The Wellness Weaver wants everyone here to be healthy and, and maybe a little wealthier. She smiles gives a little nod of acknowledgement and continues on into the city streets. As she goes away, the dock workers begin to disperse. You see some that are still unloading ships. You see various crates of crabs and lines of fish that have been caught from the day being brought into some of the seafood warehouses that are here uh, on the eastern docks um, as they begin to go into the processing facilities here uh, in Harbor Front. As you do so, the clouds start to kind of take over the bit of sunlight that was passing through as you still have the letter in your pocket ready to be looked at. Okay. I think I will take the milk crate and just tuck it off to the side where it normally sits, just on the side of the docks, just kind of tucked away from the wind and the weather. And then I'm going to find a large crate that's just being used for unloading fish and that's not being worked on at the moment and just kind of slump down to the ground and pop open the letter and read it. You plop down, unseal the letter there. It details a gruesome attack that took place at a Aruma Lumina factory in the Ore District. It hints at strange, unexplained circumstances it doesn't go into a ton in detail, but it requires your assistance and to meet with your fellow circle members at the given address within the hour. And it is signed by Alex, the head lightkeeper of Candela here in the city of Nevermore. Muttering to myself, Crap, it always is so quick. Um, And I think I'm going to use my feature, I know a guy, and see who might be able to give me a little info maybe about 
the district that I'm headed to or those type of factories or maybe even about the investigation. So yeah, I'd like to use that, that feature. All right, awesome. So yeah, there is an individual. They work at the local paper here in Nevermore. Charlie is their name. They're often out and about, but you know they usually stop by the Harbor District here late at night to have a little bit of a drink sitting out and watching the waves crash in and heading towards the place of investigation. You see Charlie sitting on one of the piers that outstretches in the Eastern docks. He's got a jacket on, a small flask uh, that he's drinking. Uh, you see he's reading a book of poetry uh, as you approach. Marvin, how's it going, my friend? What brings you here tonight? Charlie, it's so good to see you. Don't drink all of that at once. Oh no, drink it all, it doesn't matter. That's just a fun thing to say. You know me, I I won't drink too much. It's, I don't know if I'm gonna be alive tomorrow. I mean, hell, I'm gonna drink, I'm gonna have a little bit of fun. I'm gonna throw some rocks in the water. It's gonna be a great night and I gotta, uh, yeah. Anyways, he closes the book, slides into his jacket. So what, what do you, 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 you've been, you've been dealing your stuff here down on the docks or, um, you, you're heading somewhere in the town to try and throw some tinctures at people. What are you, what are you doing here, Marvin? All the docks are the easy place. Everybody here needs, needs a little help. They're all hurting. So this is, this is like easy takings when I want to just relax, but I would like to hit up some of the other districts, but they don't even want me around. Why's that? They don't take real kindly the street peddling. Mm -hmm. I got thrown on my ass a few times. Yeah, that's understandable. It's some some places here just uh, well, people got to stick up the you know where. Hmm. Same place I got thrown on. Hmm. All right, then you then you definitely know. It's that that's never fun. Well, well, what 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 can I help you with? I mean, I I'm uh. I'm whole luckily I haven't had too much to drink, so I'm kinda I can kinda comprehend stuff right now. I just wanted to see if you've heard anything about um there is some weird stuff going on in the ore district, I think, today. Did it make it to the papers? Uh there's been a little there was a little jibber jabber about it. Um Yeah, uh, something about some some factory worker, like I I I've I've heard that it's something about like they got caught in a machine or something and then like split them in two. It's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, the conditions there are just absolutely horrible. I mean, people people die all the time in the ore district and, and they kind of just, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to get up on my soapbox, but they don't take care of the people there in the, in the ore district. It's it's ridiculous. Like a lot of these people served in the emergence war and, and then they have to, they're forced to work in the factory. I'm getting off. I'm, I, yeah, a little bit has come in through, but, um, yes, I, that, that's, that's all I heard. That helps. Did you hear if they've already got police investigating it? Yeah, there's definitely some police there. Um, that's kind of how I, uh, caught a little bit of wind. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, they don't, they don't typically send a lot of police there in, in the ore district. It's just, it's just, they don't care. They're like, they'll do the reports and, you know, it, I, again, I, I, I probably should be quiet what I'm, what I'm saying because some people could be listening. You know, I, I'm a little paranoid about that, but, um, you know, some I'll end up freaking whacked in a, in a dumpster somewhere one of these nights if I don't shut my mouth. I wouldn't let that happen, Charlie. Ah. You're too valuable. Thanks, Marvin. I, I mean, I'm all right. I'm all right. Oh, no, who else am I going to sit here and watch the, the night go by and... Have a quick chat with. I mean, Charlie's your man. You can't get a you can't get a sailor to talk to you. No, they they hate me. They're like this this guy talks too much, and I'm and I'm like, well, I I'm listening to people talk to me all day at work, and then I mean, I need to I need to be able to talk too, and they get all upset about. I don't I don't understand. I don't understand. But you, Marvin, you're here to listen, and I I love that about you. Well, I was here to listen. I gotta go now, though. Oh. Oh, I see how it is. Sorry. I, I, I give That was terrible timing. I give you a little bit of information, and then you're like, all right, see you later, Charlie. Oh, come on. Come on. That's all right. Go ahead. I'm just going to have a drink here. No. You, yeah, you and your flask will be great company. Oh, yeah. This is my best friend right here, Mr. Flask. It's good stuff. It's not great. It's actually really shit bourbon, but, you know, I get paid so much money working at the, at the paper. All right. Night, Marvin. 
Bye, Charlie! And I'm just gonna head on off and just start making my way over to that district. It's gonna take me a little bit of time to get there, so... Um, not gonna move at a fast pace, just good old steady one. Hell yeah. Awesome. So as you finish the conversation with Charlie, wave goodbye uh, as you head in the direction of the Ore District through the twisting alleys of Nevermore as we cut away from Marvin and we fade in on a relatively full lecture hall. We see a bit of that lingering afternoon light filtering through these tall archway windows, creating like this warm glowing light off these polished wood floors. Uh, at the front of the room, we see this large blackboard with intricate symbols and uh, text upon it. What would look like ancient symbology and sketches of mythological creatures. And standing at the front of this room is a man, Arthur. Could you please describe what you look like? As it hands up to Arthur, you'll see uh, a man clearly born of affluent family, probably never seen too much of a hard day's work outside of it. He's in a slimly fitting suit, hair parted to the side, straight groomed beard tight against his face, and against his friend's better wishes, always wears a bright red tie, even if it doesn't match with his outfit. And he stands in front of the classroom and slaps his ruler against the board to try to get the class's attention back to upfront. Everyone, please, I understand we want to talk. I understand we're near the end of class, but let me have your time. Five more minutes. Yes, Emma, in the front. Yes. Thank you, Professor. Um, We've been discussing a lot about the occult, and I, I was curi curious about your uh, opinions on demons. Um, do you believe they are real, or is it uh, speculative? I, I, I find it quite perplexing to believe that they are not when there are so many instances of it in history. What is your opinion on that? I, I, I would love to hear it. I believe the socially acceptable answer in this case is I'll tell you it's more widely believed than not after the war and going forward. But as far as my individual opinion goes, I think, I think they've always been around. Maybe a little less prevalently, Maybe in our own minds, so forth. I mean, every person has their own demons, but I think it'd be a fool's errand to disregard. So, lock your door, and I'll give her a wink. She tucks a little bit of her loose strand of hair behind her ear, and you just see she starts scribbling down notes. Other students doing the same thing. Uh, a little, a little blush in her cheeks with the wink. As you look back up uh, after addressing Emma, you see the doors in the back of the lecture hall here open. Entering, you see a familiar figure, Eleanor Sinclair, one of the light keepers of Candela. She's in her early 40s, studious, long black hair, uh, a dark blazer with these flowing dark pants uh, with this intricate belt that cinches at her waist. You see her stare with, with a sense of urgency in her eyes as chatter continues in the classroom and outside of the classroom as well as the other classes are getting out at this time. All right, everyone, that's pretty much concludes our time here. If there's five minutes left, I'll leave that um, up to you all. Do with that what you will. Uh, remember, papers are due um, what is it, next week from now? So, please, I don't want to hound you. Please get it done. Office hours are coming if you have any questions. Otherwise, it will just be me sitting there, as it tends to be every week. But, once again, they're there for you if you need it. Otherwise, uh, have a good rest of your day. As you dismiss class and begin to pick up a few things, you see Eleanor begins to approach, but also approaching in front of her is Emma. She approaches the front of the room. Professor, I have another question for you. Um, are we always going to be ending class early? Is this a common thing? Or are we going to be able to uh, attend a full class moving forward? I just, uh, I'm terribly sorry to ask, but I, I just, my parents pay a lot for my education, and I just want to make sure I'm getting the most out of it. Typically, we'll be going the full, as we have. And yet, you know, Emma, if I may be a little bold here, for someone asking about class time, I've never seen you in my office hours for someone that wants so much information. You know when they are. They're in the syllabus. Uh, Swing by. She just nods her head, embarrassed, and pivots turns around and walks 
past Eleanor, the lightkeeper, who clocks what just happened and approaches Arthur, leans up against the wall. You gotta go easy on them sometimes. That that girl was so red. You know, I would, once again, Eleanor, if she came to office hours. Do you know how boring it is to sit there for so long by yourself with no one to talk to? I wonder statistically how many how many professors just sit there and never have students come? Almost the entire department. It's pitiful. Well, I'm sure it gives you plenty of time to work on other things. I mean, you seem deep in your research still. I've, do you at least do that or is it just Arthur stares at a wall time? You know, I, Eleanor, I love the banter and you are truly the most beautiful curse to show up in my room every time. And yet... Thank you. And yet this typically ends a certain way. I, I mean, tr prove me wrong. Is this a friendly visit to check in? I'd love to chat. Well, uh, yes and no. Um, I was actually here to pick up a book from the library, doing a bit of a research on, well, some, some shared interest. And um, Alex caught me uh, on the way out. And you probably know where I'm going with this. I have a striking feeling. Um, well... Well, I'm sure it is spot on. Um, Alex wanted to let you know that there appears to have been some type of, well, incident in the ore district uh, at one of the factories there. Um, the individual uh, in question um, is, based on the information we have, uh, may have been one of your past students. Uh, a Victor Kral, I believe is his name. Sounds familiar. Um, is he is he alive? Yes. Um, I would assume a little shook up uh, if the reports I'm getting are correct. Uh, but um, Marvin and, and Dominic have also been um, alerted to head there. Uh, and if, if possible, I, I know you usually take a little bit of time after class for yourself, but uh, Alex would like you there within the hour, if possible. Just not not if possible if, within the hour. Generally curious why, if Alex was already here, why they didn't stop by to tell me? Oh, no, no. Oh, no, no, she wasn't. Uh, I, I saw her before I left the the lighthouse, yes. They just didn't have the time. When does she? I'm assuming. They were busy. She's she's always busy, it seems. Well, I appreciate at least you taking the time to stop by, Eleanor. I do appreciate it. However, you are now burdened with grading these papers that I have to hand out tomorrow. Uh, and I believe you know enough to, to handle them appropriately. I'll rummage for the bag and just hand her a stack of, like, a hundred papers that clearly Arthur has been procrastinating, grading, until right now. She grabs... I trust you implicitly, Eleanor. <sighs> Arthur, Arthur. Fine. Won't take me too long. I'll have these on your desk in the morning. I'll drop them off for you. Actually, no. You can pick them up, the, up at the lighthouse. I'll leave him there. And here I was saying you could drop them off at my place, but I suppose the lighthouse will do. Thank you, Eleanor. I'll grab my bag and start making my way out. Awesome. Uh, she just gives a big old grin at Arthur uh, and gives him a bit of a whack on the back with the papers uh, as he walks away from her. As we cut away from Arthur here at the Nevermore Institute of Technology and Engineering, and we shift our focus over to a dimly lit and smoky room as we fade in on the Verboten Lounge here in the Crimson Lantern District. Verboten is alive with jazzy melodies of a live band. The air is thick with anticipation and laughter. The room consists of these opulent layouts um, consisting of these lush red fabrics, a beautifully designed obsidian black stone bar with every liquor imaginable, plush seating and cascading golden chandeliers. As we take in this room and the folks that are here within the Verboten Lounge, we shift our attention to a close-up of a glass filled with bourbon. We see a strong hand wrapping around it as we push out to see sitting there at a corner table, a brute of a man, his eyes keenly fixed on a woman dressed in this scarlet dress across the room. Dominic, could you tell us what you look like? The party in the room never really quite makes it to his table, no matter how loud and and boisterous the, the crowd gets, it doesn't affect this man. He fills the table with his massive self. He's dressed a lot like your dad would dress. 
his style is a little bit out of date. Everything's a tiny bit threadbare if you look close, but it's neat and tidy and decidedly unfancy. His hair is honey gold blonde with silver hinting up at the temples. He's certainly in his 40s. His mustache is uh, the type that, you know, one of those big full mustaches that were the style of other military officers at the time. His simple shirt is rolled up in his sleeves to show off, well, probably not to show off with his style, but it does show off his massive forearms. Suspenders and clean wool pants. The suspenders only emphasize his massive shoulders. He leaves a top few buttons undone, probably less to show any skin, of course, but because his big bold neck, probably uncomfortable if it was buttoned up. The bourbon doesn't last long. He downs another one, leaning on the table, hunched over. He can't make himself small, but he's willing it that way. But uh, he's watching Red Dress like he has been for the last while. He's curious for a couple different reasons, but uh, yeah, what, 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 does, uh, what does Dominic notice that Red Dress has been doing? Yes, Dominic, you see the woman dressed in this scarlet dress engaging in conversations with several other patrons. You see that the folks that she's engaging with range from well-dressed gentlemen. You would gather that likely those of the promenade district, politicians, counselors of the predominance. You would also see amongst this group some of the entertainers here at the Verboten Lounge. Men dressed in fine suits, custom tailored to fit their bodies perfectly, along with women in elegant gowns with beautiful gems that seem to just sparkle and light up the room as they walk around. The woman that Dominic is here keeping an eye on is Isabella Thorne. You would know her as the daughter of one of the counselors of the predominance. You would see her, as these conversations are happening, you would see the moving of hands and the passing of something small, what looks like a glass vial between some of these folks here. As your eyes narrow on this, you catch something out of the corner of your eye as this dimly lit entrance into the Verbroten Lounge swings open. You see this figure approaching, Donovan Holmes, a lightkeeper, of Candela Obscura. In his mid-40s, dark skin, manicured goatee, a stern and imposing figure, dressed in this tailored black suit with dark gray pinstripes. He strides in, his presence commands attention as he scans the room until his eyes lock with Dominic. I look up and I say, Donnie, looks like you're here for a reason. I'm tailing someone right now, this better be good. Well, <laughs> of course it's good. He grabs a chair, sits down. What you having today? Bourbon? Same as usual. That's right. Dominic holds up his glass, holds up two fingers. You see this younger man, probably you could gather mid-twenties, wearing the attire that is worn by a lot of the waitstaff here, Everboten, a kind of a, almost like a, a half jacket with a flaring tail kind of at the back. It flares down like a, a suit with the tail at the back, essentially a, a fine pressed white shirt and a black bow tie. You see that they go over to the bar and have the bartender pour uh, two bourbons uh, as they walk over to your table with them. Here you are, places them down. Anything else I can get for you, Dominic, or uh, for, for your friend here? How's your mom doing? Ah, <sighs> well, um, she's all right. Um, I'm had to pick up a few extra shifts. Uh, her um, landlord raised her rent again, um, second time this year. Um, and I'm just trying to help her out a bit. I know the place. Maybe I'll uh, pay him a visit. I, I, I couldn't ask you to do that, Dominic. You know, he won't be bugging you too much anymore. And, and don't worry, D Donnie here is an excellent tipper when he picks uh, up this tab. Oh, Dominic. Yes, uh, you see uh, Donovan pulls out some bills and, and places it down. Um, he actually just places it on the tray that the waiter, uh, Onslow, is holding. Thank you. Um, One second, Anzal. Donnie, Donnie, he's got a sick mom. Come on, that's all you're gonna give him? Roll a, roll a sway check for me. Uh, lo low stakes, but... <laughs> so I got two in the sway. I won't give any drive yet. Oh, 
Two twos. He looks at Onslow and then at you, Dominic. I'm sure you could, um, I'm sure you could throw in a little extra to help your friend here. <sighs> Dom's a man of honor. He does exactly that. Donovan grabs his glass, leans back a little bit in the chair, takes a sip. So, bit of a problem. I know you're busy right now, but uh, Alex has already had Marvin and Arthur contacted, but there's been a bit of a situation down at the Ore District, and I know with your time in the in the military, there's a lot of folks down there that were former soldiers and, um, well, thought it would be a good thing to have you there and to back up your... Okay. I want to make something perfectly clear. I can hear you walking on eggshells. I can hear you trying to, uh, touch me with, uh, with, uh, kid gloves. Um, you know what? I'm okay. I appreciate your concern, but you don't need to, uh, sugarcoat anything with me. I don't need that extra effort spent on me at all. Where is the trouble again? Which factory? Uh, it's in the ore district. Um, one of the uh, Arum Lumina factories. Uh, one of their workers um, got torn up pretty bad. Doesn't sound... I mean, the machinery there is problematic. But from our initial reports, uh, it sounds familiar to some of the stuff we saw. So just be ready. All right. Now, before I look up from uh, our table, Donnie, I'm, I'm going to place a bet. $5 says that when I look up, that woman in the red dress that I've been tailing this whole night is going to be gone. And I look up. She's gone. <laughs> you owe me five bucks. Fine. He, 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 throws a te he throws 10 bucks on the, on the table. Let's go into Onslow. Good. Seems like he needs it more, more than you do. Now, was there anything that I clocked that uh, Isabella Thorne was up to? Anything that uh, to make it so that this uh, this evening wasn't a total waste? Yeah. Um, as you kind of re-look over at the area, go ahead and give me a a survey. Yep. Yep. We'll say it's a. Okay. Oh, I have one of those. This will this be. A low stakes roll. So when I have one, I roll one die. And it's a one. Yeah, so as you look over, um, you actually see that all the things that were over at the table have already been cleared and taken away. You see other folks starting to move over to that space where it was once occupied by Isabella and their group there. All right. Well, I'll start again tomorrow. Uh, Donovan finishes his drink, uh, slaps the table. Be careful. Hmm. Dominic doesn't know what to, what to do about that. That's an interesting thing to hear from uh, our, my white keeper. All right. I will be, I guess. I would say, aren't I always, but I don't want to hear the, the answer. No, you don't. He gets up and uh, turns around and, and heads out of the out of the Verboten Lounge, leaving you there to finish your drink. All right. I take a, a walking glass, too. Hell yeah. Awesome. Cool. So as you pick up your glass and you head out of the lounge here, the Verboten Lounge, passing through the doorway out onto the evening streets of Nevermore, we're going to cut back in time a bit as we shift our focus to earlier in the day. We open on this wide shot of a gloomy, smoke-choked sky that looms over the Aruma Lumina foundry factory here. We see these tall, soot-covered chimneys blackened as they pierce the clouds while steam hisses from these towering exhaust pipes. We push in on one of these buildings as a cacophony of clanging machinery, hissing steam, and harsh rhythmic stomps of workers amidst these flickering glass lanterns grows louder and louder. As we do, we see the factory floor as we push in through the window of one of these buildings here. 
where women and men in soot-covered clothing operate these steam-powered contraptions, while others tend to the molten metal in crucibles. We pan across the faces of these exhausted and haggard workers, many bearing scars of the emergence war, both physically and mentally, on their weary souls here. Amongst these faces is a young man. His face is etched with fatigue and concern as he tightens a stubborn bolt, his knuckles white with effort, sweat dripping from his forehead as they land on these machine gears. As we see the sweat hit the gears here, we pull out of a wider shot of this young man. Victor, could you describe what you look like? Yeah, so Victor is a tall, lengthy, skinny man. Um, he can almost be described as gaunt. Um, and very po pointy. Um, I think looking at him, you are reminded that we have a human skeleton underneath our skin. Um, you can see every po uh, point and just bone in his body, uh, whether it's his cheekbones or his jawline or even his uh, bones in his hand and his wrist and his arm. Um, you're constantly just reminded just how skinny this man is um, and that there's a whole skeleton under there. Um, he has kind of a middle part, um, kind of darker brown, uh, messy hair. It's kind of un unkept. Um, he has kind of dark bags under under his eyes, um, a kind of thin thin mouth, um, larger ears, and he's wearing kind of just a factory jumpsuit. Um, underneath his clothes, he's usually adorned with a white button-up um, that looks to be about two sizes too large for him. Uh, he has a loose black tie and black suspenders and black pants. Other than that, he is adorned in sweat, uh, dirt, oil, just just a whole mess. Um, it looks like, um, rather than even in the conditions he's in, it looks like he's worked three shifts rather than one. As we see Victor struggling, just this kind of perpetual exhaustion about him we we push in close on this bolt as he tries to twist and twist his knuckles growing wider and wider until finally it slips from victor's grip as it falls to the ground to the ground with a clang as the bolt hits the ground victor it's almost an isolated sound amongst all of the chaos. The moving machines, the, the sound of the metal crucibles cracking together, the hiss of the steam. You feel this, as that bolt hits the ground, you feel this chill race up your spine. This tether that, that seems to almost pull your focus um, as, as you feel that chill to the corner of the factory floor. Victor, as you look toward the corner of the factory, your eyes lock on to something. You see this shimmering tear in the fabric of reality. Something that you've seen before. You feel in your chest your heart begin to pound as you watch, your eyes unable to look away as this tear seems to ooze darkness like thick smoke. As you see this grotesque spider-like leg emerge from the tear. Then another. Another, as it casts these eerie shadows on these grimy walls here in this factory. You see your other workers as you're frozen in place, staring at this, working around, oblivious, unaware, their attention consumed by their work. As you see one of the legs of this creature stretch out like a knife in the dark as it swiftly impales a worker. You see blood begin to spew from the man's chest as his eyes grow wide in terror. As he is lifted off the ground, his feet kicking, absolute pain 
washes over this man as he grabs the leg that is impaled through his chest. Victor, as you see this frozen, your eyes shifting to the ground, averting your gaze from the horror that is unfolding in front of you. As you go to look back, you feel something grab your shoulder. Victor, Victor, your machine is seizing my friend. Uh, you need to get the bolt back in. Come on. I'm, I'm sorry. I, uh, I, uh, I, I'll, I'll do it. And Victor will very quickly kind of try to shake it off. Um, I think he'll realize like he's almost out of breath. Like he was wasn't breathing for a second. Um, and he'll go back to his machine and 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 try to close up really quickly and, and fix the the mistake he's accidentally made. As you go to fix, uh, you see that the figure that had grabbed your shoulder, we, we pan around and, and we see uh, standing there um, is a man, uh, one of your coworkers, Philip. Uh, he's in his mid-20s, but looks much older than Victor. Uh, he's wearing this tattered jumpsuit similar uh, to what Victor is wearing. Uh, skinny and frail, uh, his eyes sunken. Uh, and they have like a faint yellow hue to them at the corner of his eyes uh, and a bit of a patchy beard. Um, and Victor, as you get that bolt back into position, there's a moment where from within your peripheral, you glance over towards where you saw what you saw in the corner of the room and nothing is there beyond the grimy wall. As you fix the bolt, Philip, uh, you feel them tap a, a wad of what feels like bills up to your chest in this piece of parchment paste, like an envelope up against your chest. Time to get out of here, friend. Uh, it's payday. And we got two days to blow it all away. How much are they uh, paying us this week? Uh, I think maybe, um, I think we got about uh, 20, 25, maybe, and he, he he looks to his, ah, I think like 20 this week. Uh, we've been working a lot of overtime, though. Could be better, but I guess better than nothing. Mm. Hey, uh, why don't you meet me outside? I'm going to take a moment to wrap up here, and and uh, I'll meet you for a smoke. That sounds good. I'll, um, I'll, I'll see you in a bit. All right. I think Victor will kind of take a second to collect himself too and kind of just do like a breathing exercise and try to just remind himself that what he saw can't hurt him he he sees it all the time and that it'll pass because it always does he'll take a few quick breaths um try to just relax and he'll finish closing up the station as you complete these breathing exercises and in in a way recenter yourself remembering that yes these visions I've had them before, it's, it's okay. We follow Victor as he exits the factory building as the, the floor is empty of other workers. Uh, as you walk through the door, uh, you see other factory buildings um, that surround the courtyard. You see workers leaving. Uh, standing outside, we see Philip leaning up against the pole. You see him pull out a silver case from uh, a pocket inside a jacket he's now wearing. You see he flips it open and hands it over to you. And, and you see there's a few cigarettes and then a small glass vial about the size of a pinky with what looks like iridescent dust within it. Um, the smoke, do you have, can have one of mine? I think you feel it, uh, yeah. I appreciate it. Oh, of course. How many uh, cigarettes do I, must I owe you now? Uh, I don't. I think I'm too many. Many is probably right. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, so, um, any big plans with the fresh, fresh money for the weekend, or gonna head to the Crimson Lantern and for a little revelry and letting loose? No, I, I have a hard habit of letting loose, but uh, I think I might visit my sister and give her half. And, uh, I don't know. Spend the other half on food. Maybe rent. Uh, so responsible. Seems to always be due. It's... It feels like that, doesn't it? 
Mm. And I swear they try to raise it every... Uh, I don't know. It's it's getting expensive to live in the South Levy. Very. It's hard to see some of my uh, neighbors go through increases and hikes. I try to help out, but, you know, this place only pays us so much. And underpays us is, well, an understatement. Yeah, I know. It's info... For the conditions they put us in, <laughs> it's... Well, now um, you're going to get that golf jet outside. I did not mean to, oh, to jump in. Uh, don't... <laughs> don't worry. It's... I have something that can take care of it. Don't... Uh, it's all good. It, as he says this, you see he pulls that glass vial that is sitting on the opposite side of the two cigarettes that are left. And you see he grabs it, uh, holding it up to you. This stuff right here is... Well, it makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> Just a little... Well, what is it? Oh, it's, uh... It has a few different names, but... Um... What it usually is, it's called Glimmer. Um... Huh? Yes. You haven't heard of it? It's kind of mm. a... I have heard of it, and I have seen it, but... Not really up close, and I don't really have too much experience. Oh. I try to stay away from... Cigarettes are, are enough. I have one thing killing me I don't need. Well, maybe more than one, but I don't need more. Well, well, if you want a little, I can give you a little extra. We, I've got quite a good deal on this one. Uh, got a new dealer about uh, a lot cheaper. <laughs> a new dealer? Good. What, what happened to the last guy? Oh, uh, they... Uh, God, I don't know. Probably should sell them when they shouldn't have been selling, and I don't know. You know how this stuff works. You cross the wrong person, but yeah, I mean it's good. I've been trying to use the extra money and and save up for um. Well, <laughs> I've been saving up to. Well, I think Alice and I are going to be leaving the self levy soon. Um, <coughs> leaving. Yes, um, where I've, I've been putting money away for, um, we're going to relocate to the chalice, um, this, the new homes are being built there, and I've been saving up, uh, we need a bigger place for, uh, I've, I haven't told anyone this, but, um, we found out, uh, recently, Alice is... Alice is pregnant. Pregnant? Oh, congratulations! I I did not know. This is this is wonderful news. I'm very excited. It's uh, honestly a little un. It was not. Um, uh, you could call it a bit of a whoopsie. Um, but we're she's excited. She's I don't know. It's I didn't think she could be more beautiful, and I just we're. It's exciting. I can't wait. I, I don't even have a gift for you. I I I I, I did not have time to prepare. I, uh, here, I don't even say anything. Just take this, and I'll take out half of the the cash, and I'll I'll offer it up to him. I, I really I you need it more than me, and I and I I want you to have something, and I'm I'm just so happy for you. And please, just. Vic, I can't. I no. I I can't do this. I that. And and you will. Uh, he clasps Victor on the shoulder, gives a friendly squeeze. I appreciate it, friend. Uh, every little bit will help. I can imagine having a a little one probably will <laughs> make life a little bit more um well special, but probably need a little bit more money to get by. That is not for free, but that is a down payment for a middle name, okay, Victor, for the middle name. Done. I am joking, of course, but just make sure you use it wisely, huh? I, I will, I will. He takes the bills and he slides into his pocket and you see him pop the little cork off the top of the vial and he pours a little bit onto the silver case. And as he does, a little bit of wind picks up in the space and some of the dust gets blown off the case and kind of like lands on some of the cigarettes and in just flows off and ah shit uh well 
at least. Uh, maybe I don't need it today. Uh, he maybe it's a sign. Maybe, yeah, maybe maybe not today. He puts the cork back on the glass vial and slides it, puts it back into the spot, but he grabs one of the cigarettes out and lifts it up. He lights a match, does a long drag to get it going, hands you the matches, Victor. As you go to light your cigarette, you see Philip grabbing his throat and you look and he's still in his hand. He's holding the cigarette. And rather than it being this orange ember, you see this dark smoke pouring out of the tip. The ember is not red, is not orange and red. It is pure, almost like a voidless black. And you start to see a bit of like dripping black ichor coming out of it. As you see, he drops it to the ground and falls to his knees and his eyes start bulging out of his head as he looks to you. What is going on? Are you okay? I think immediately Victor will try to hold on to him and try to maybe see if there's something too tight around him or on him, see if his shirt is maybe too tight on him. So I think he'll kind of quickly ask, like, this has happened before. What, what do I do? Is it is it too tight? He just stares into your eyes and he shakes his head no. And, and as you check around, you kind of pry his hands off of his neck. You start to see the lower part of his neck start to bulge outward. And you see across from one side to the other, it just split open from the inside out. And as it splits open from the inside out, you just see this waterfall of black ichor start pouring out of his neck. And from it, you see this this leg start to emerge from it. As you see this leg stretch out towards you, I need you to make a roll for me, and it is a high stakes roll. So that is my worst skill. Uh, okay, move. So I'm gonna roll twice, and I'm gonna take the disadvantage. So let's see. First roll. I'm gonna roll it on the, uh... Oh, second roll! One! That is a one. Okay, so, uh, as this, uh, as you see that waterfall of black ichor pouring out of his, out of his throat, and this leg begin to emerge, you go to step back, and there is a platform there, a stairwell that heads down from this wooden porch that kind of sits on the outside of the, the factory here. As you step back, you feel yourself falling. But as you do, there is this leg grabs your shoulder and you feel it pull, like try to pull you towards it. And as it does, you feel this gash go across your shoulder. It does it in a way that not, not only do you feel this gash across your arm, it almost feels like you think your arm is going to be removed from your torso. As you fall backwards, do so you take a body uh, as you fall backwards, you smack your head on some loose rubble on the ground. You also take a brain as well. Your head dazed, your heartbeat increasing as the stress of the situation overwhelms you. And as you hit your head, you start to see this creature, more legs kind of start to land next to you as looming over top. You see Philip up in the air uh, as this leg kind of is holding him up as more come out through his throat. And you see as they kind of land next to you, you see Philip's body get bisected in two and just almost just filleting him out as his body just flops down onto the ground. And uh, you see over the top of you this creature with this with this bulbous head and uh these burning amber eyes stare down at you i think uh victor will kind of first take a second and be dazed from the hit on his head i think he'll almost with already how little he eats and how frail he is i think he'll immediately almost see stars and kind of have to take a second to regain his footing even though he's like laying on the ground and he'll kind of push himself up and like hold his head for a second. And as he kind of starts to regain his vision, he'll kind of see this thing in front of him. And I think with all the things he's seen, he's never quite seen something like this. So I think he'll kind of just take a moment to take it in, in one part in curiosity and the other part of fear of, of moving and disturbing this thing. So I think he'll kind of just stare at it in, in horror, but also fascination. Awesome. So as you stare at this creature, its legs almost sink down into the 
earth around you and his body gets closer and closer and closer to you as you lay there still kind of days and as you meet its eyes that's when the real effects of hitting your head you start to see all of these visions you've had throughout your life all seem to manifest like a flash in front of you as this creature looms closer and closer and closer as you see all of these nightmares that you have had these things that you have seen manifest in this brief moment as it stares down upon you As a line moves across its face, lighting up this iridescent line like a Cheshire cat grin, and its mouth opens wide, this gaping maw with what looks like hundreds of rows of razor-sharp teeth. I think Victor is now kind of like just staring at it still, but is starting to try to come to and get and get out of it and come up with a game plan and, and realize that this isn't like what he usually sees and that this is this is very, very real. I think Victor will slowly kind of reach into his pocket for a little pocket knife. And then as he does, he'll get ready and kind of get in a better sitting stance, almost like on his knees or like sitting uh, in a sitting position. And then he'll try to dash under it and then pull his knife out and, and try to get to the other side of it, like go in between its legs and turn around to be behind it kind of thing. Okay. As you try to move around it, get away, as you pull out this pocket knife from your jumpsuit, you run around. So go ahead and uh, are you attempting to attack it or are you just trying to get out of the way at this point? Just trying to, I'm trying to get out of the way. So what I want to do is run in between its legs um, and just get like at least 10 or 15 feet on the other side of it, just so I can get some distance between me and then to turn around and just then get out ready. Okay, perfect. All right, so uh, as you as you run around this creature, you see the legs kind of like folding in in this unnatural way, almost shifting in position upon this creature's body. As you run, you're gonna go ahead and make a move roll uh, for me. Um, this is gonna be uh, another high stakes roll as you try and get out of the way. Okay. It's a five and a four. Okay. Okay, and is that, with the five and the four, do you have that as an ability as far as, or is that something you roll with a disadvantage? Is that? Oh, uh, just because I don't have anything in the move category. Yeah, roll with a disadvantage, take the four. Um, so mixed success. Yeah, I don't have any, yeah, I don't have any drives or anything to spend either, so. Just leave it at that. Okay, awesome. So, Victor, as you run around this creature here, you are able to get to the outside of it and gain some distance, but you see the leg as they fold in an unnatural way. One of them lashes out towards you and strikes you. As you hold your knife out, it strikes you in your chest and you get flown across and you land next to Philip's lifeless body as you see the creature kind of shift over and look at you, but then it gets low to the ground and just takes off towards one of the buildings straight ahead. And you see as it's running towards the building, the body almost folds in to itself as it leaps through a window and you hear the sound of of glass breaking as the creature goes through the window and as you find yourself lying next to philip here uh, and you do take another body on that gotcha so as you lay next to philip your knife still in your hand you pick yourself up and as you kind of look around you see philip in front of you you also hear in the distance what sounds like gas i think i'll turn immediately kind of to see where it comes from try to do it fast but i think with how damaged i am i kind of like half shuffle over holding my side with the knife still out and i kind of like hold it out in front of me to see um where it's coming from as you turn around pointing the knife out you see two of your co-workers looking towards you and down at philip's body which is now quite dismembered and you see them take off running for help I think Victor will look down and kind of realize the situation he's accidentally put himself in and kind of take a half haggard kind of breath and just go, oh, ish. And that is where we'll end episode one of Streets of Nevermore, The Circle of Dawn's Macabre. Thanks for listening. Hello, hello. Kylie Hollop here, Game Master of Season 1 of the Streets of Nevermore podcast. 
I wanted to take a moment to shout out our Patreon subscribers, Benjamin Hadler and Kenneth Torek for your support. If you're interested in becoming a patron of the podcast, please head over to patreon.com slash dicecape to learn more about the available tiers and the perks you get for becoming a Dicecape Patreon subscriber. Links to our Patreon will be found in the show notes and a link to a video breaking down the tiers put together by the one and only Richard Shield, who plays Victor Crowell in the season of Streets of Nevermore. Your patronage helps support our small team scattered across the country, put together each episode as we continue to refine our craft, utilize better resources so that we can deliver continually evolving episodes throughout the remainder of the season and beyond. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to sharing the next episode with you soon. Streets of Nevermore, a Dicegate podcast, was created using the Darrington Press Community Gaming License. The Illuminated World Standard Resource document is owned and copyrighted by Darrington Press LLC. All rights reserved. Streets of Nevermore, a Dicegate podcast, is adapted from and based on content created and owned by Darrington Press. Candela Obscura, Darrington Press LLC 2023, available at darringtonpress.com.